Rosa, I think we have time for one more. Yes, Dr. Crane. On line four, we have Russell from Kirkland. Hello, Russell. This is Dr. Fraser Crane. I'm listening. Well, I have been feeling sort of, um, you know, depressed lately. My life's not going anywhere. It's not that bad. It's just the same old apartment, same old job. Some, sometimes uh, Russell, just... we're just about at the end of our hour. Let me see if I can cut to the chase by using myself as an example. Six months ago, I was living in Boston. My wife had left me, which was very painful. Then she came back to me, which was excruciating. <laughs> On top of that, my practice had grown stagnant, and my social life consisted of well, hanging around a bar night after night. <laughs> you see, I was clinging to a life that wasn't working anymore, and I knew I had to do something, anything. So I ended the marriage once and for all, packed up my things, and moved back here to my hometown of Seattle. Go Seahawks. <laughs> I took action, Russell, and you can too. Move, change. Do something. If it's a mistake, do something else. Will you do that, Russell? Will you? <laughs> Russell? I think we lost him. No, we cut to the news 30 seconds ago. <laughs> For crying out loud. I finally bare my soul to all of Seattle and they're listening to Chopper Dave's Rush Hour Roundup. <laughs> Broadcasting live to tape. The Society Show is back. From the new Society Theater, now located in Seattle, Washington. I'm listening. You're listening to the podcast of a world gone mad. This is the Society Show. You know, we're living in a society... On today's episode, I had a nice hiatus from the show. I'm all moved in to the new theater, made it cross country, ready to make the greatest podcast on earth again. But we have a ton of news to get to this episode. A whole bunch of newsworthy things happened since the last episode, which was about a month ago. So I'm going to do my segment, The Facts and Logic Report, where I quickly go over some news stories from the past month. And later on in the show, I will be taking more... I'll I'll be going more in-depth about a few stories. I'm going to talk about what I'm calling the Covexodus from cities to suburbs and rural areas uh, there are many exoduses around the world in several different countries related to COVID and uh, a lot of them are also more complicated than that there's not just COVID but there is a trend of people moving out into the suburbs and more rural areas. Uh, I will also reflect back on the coup in Bolivia now that we are several months removed, do kind of a look back on 
what's been going on there, specifically Lithium's role in the coup originally, because while we are on hiatus, Elon Musk actually tweeted about it, potentially his role in the coup. Finally, since the American election season is heating up, I want to really spell out why the U.S. has such a rigid two-party system and what we can do about it. The sad answer is probably not much, but uh, uh, I'll talk about how that came to exist, how it's changed over time, why it's different from other countries, stuff like that. All of that and much, much more. This is The Society Show. Society. Like I said, I'll get to the facts and logic or report, but first. But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. I wanted to start off the return episode by, you know, paying a little tribute to Michael Brooks. He died right after I recorded the last episode before moving. So it's been a while now, I've had some time to think about it, and I just want to say what Michael Brooks meant to the show. If you're not familiar with him, he was uh, one of the co-hosts of Majority Report with Sam Cedar, and he also had his own show called The Michael Brooks Show. Uh, I really appreciated his commentary because he had a very, a very international and left-wing perspective. Uh, he wanted to grow an international workers' movement. And if you've listened to this show before, you could kind of surmise that that's something I would like to do too, in the sense that I focus almost entirely on international news uh, because I think it's really important for people to to know about the world around them. But I like to talk about things with an international focus, and I think it's I try to write about how things in the world are impacting people in America or wherever you live. I try not to have an American-centric view, but uh, those are all things that I think Mike, Michael Brooks did really well and. Uh, he was just a really principled type of personality that you don't usually get from uh, someone who makes a podcast, to be honest. So uh, rest in peace, Michael Brooks. And um, now that I've said my piece about that, let's move on to the facts and logic report. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. Back in July, after the Trump administration told China to close their consulate in Houston, China, in response, denounced American diplomats in Chengdu, forcing the consulate there to close. Xinhua News, a state-run news agency in China, published an editorial that said, quote, The United States has recently stirred up troubles in relations with China to the point of hysteria. The unprovoked closure of the Chinese consulate in Houston by the United States not only aroused the indignation of the Chinese people, but also allowed the international community to see the true face of American bullying. End quote. I was just trying to ask you where's the bus stop. 
At the end of July, all 50 states issued warnings about mysterious unsolicited packages of seeds that people across the nation had received in the mail in recent weeks. You've got mail. The packages appear to be coming from China. Some of the labels also indicate that the packages contain jewelry, although inside is typically a packet of small seeds in clear plastic packaging rather than jewelry. Uh, I don't know if you guys had any connection to this, but I actually know someone who got these seeds, so, and I haven't been hearing about it as much now, so maybe it's some weird one-time thing. UFOs, a river flows, plant a little seed, and nature grows. More recently, Donald Trump commented on QAnon for the first time. When asked about it, Trump said, quote, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me. Okay, I gotta restart and read this in my Trump <laughs> Trump voice. Trump said, quote, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, which I appreciate. Thank you very much, and now I'm going to pay my respects to a very, very special place. Thank you very much. Um, moving on. On August 4th, ammonium nitrate stored at the port of Beirut accidentally exploded, causing at least 181 deaths, 6,000 injuries, 10 to $15 billion in property damage, and le- leaving an estimated 300,000 people homeless. Here's a little news flash. It's not funny. In fact, it's pretty freaking unfunny. Around 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate had been stored in a warehouse for the previous six years after getting confiscated by Lebanese authorities from an abandoned ship called MV Rosas. It's not confirmed what caused the ammonium nitrate to detonate, but the most common suggestions seem to be fireworks break out, broke out on fire, potentially causing a small explosion that then led to the large explosion. Of course, there's a bunch of different theories, but that is the one I've heard the most. And uh, At first, people were talking about how, oh, Hezbollah did it, oh, Israel did it, oh, so-and-so did it, oh, uh, ISIS, who who knows, whatever. Uh, I, those theories seem to have died down because I just don't think they carried much weight. It seemed to be one of those instances where it's just like, it only makes sense to be a big accident. Um, that's what I believe, at least. Also, the Prime Minister and Cabinet resigned after the explosion. They took the responsibility for how reckless it was to store ammonium nitrate there. I saw the worst accident I ever seen. The U.S. embarrassed itself on the international stage when the U.N. rejected their attempt to sanction Iran. The U.S. claims that since they backed out of the Iran nuclear deal, then the U.N. should sanction Iran again. Universally, the global community disagreed, saying they are still observing the Iran nuclear deal and will not impose sanctions just because the U.S. backed out of it. Yankee, go home. 
Iran detained an Iranian-American leader of a California-based monarchist militant opposition group called the Kingdom Assembly of Iran, also known as Tondar, which is thunder in Farsi, I think. I'm pretty sure that's true. Iran alleges that the group planned a 2008 attack on a mosque that killed 14 and injured 2,200 others. The reporting I've seen about this situation makes it seem like Iran simply did this in response to the U.S. ratcheting up pressure against Iran. Um, and portraying it like Iran kidnapped some random California dude they didn't like. And called him a terrorist. However, what the reporting uh, conveniently doesn't mention is that the Kingdom Assembly of Iran, the group this guy was the leader of, actually claimed responsibility for the attack. His group told everyone he did the terrorist attack. Um, So, I mean, he may not have conducted the attack himself, but the organization that he leads wanted everyone to think they did the attack. Your campaign of terror, murder, mayhem will not be tolerated any longer. Saudi Arabia traditionally has a very centralized economy where the Saudi government and Saudi royal family control capitalist industries. You know, they profit off of a lot of industries the same way a capitalist would, even though they're the head of state. So they shouldn't... In the U.S., it's a little more separate even though to the same effect in, in Saudi Arabia all the power is just concentrated around the Saud royal family um but now Saudi Arabia is looking to sell assets in sectors not previously considered for privatization the plan to privatize is in response to the Saudi-Russia oil price war, which backfired and negatively impacted the Saudi economy. I'm an oil man. Turkish President Erdogan announced the discovery of a large natural gas reserve off the coast of the Black Sea that will ease the country's dependence on imports. My dad says butane's a bastard gas. At the beginning of August, the United Arab Emirates announced that it has started operations in the first of four reactors at the Baraka nuclear power station, the first nuclear power plant in the Arab world. Oh, hell, let's just do what we always do, hijack some nuclear weapons and hold the world hostage. In July, a Jordan court affirmed that the Muslim Brotherhood, quote, no longer exists after the country's branch of the group failed to renew a license. Over the years, as Egypt, what? Saudi Arabia, what? And the United Arab Emirates, what? declared the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization, Jordan did not make a similar declaration. 
The Muslim Brotherhood had deep roots in Jordan, but the rela relationship between the Hashemite kingdom and the Brotherhood deteriorated after the Arab Spring, when the Muslim Brotherhood began challenging Hashemite authority in protests similar to the ones in Egypt. After several raids and bureaucratic technicalities related to licensing, Jordan has removed power from the Muslim Brotherhood without declaring them a terrorist group like their neighbors. In early August, a Palestinian woman died of a gunshot wound after being shot by Israeli forces. She was near a clash between protesting Pal Palestinian youth and Israeli troops in the illegally occupied West Bank. May Allah awaken the people and help them to see the evil doings of Israel and the United States. The largest Palestinian hospital called Al-Makassad Islamic Charitable Society Hospital faces closure. The hospital is running at 50% capacity and numerous factors are contributing to a potential closure. Some of these factors include COVID, of course, and another major factor is a severing of coordination between Israeli or Israel and the Palestinian Authority. I got a bad feeling about this. Some Palestinian patients, depending on where they live, need an Israeli army-issued medical permit to reach the hospital. Because of the severed coordination, they have not been able to obtain these permits. If the hospital closes, it will have a very negative impact on Palestinian health because the hospital is subjected to Israeli laws. If it closes, is al-Din Hussein, the head of the hospital, said, quote, No Palestinian institution in Jerusalem that is shut down is reopened again. If the hospital is closed, its fate will be in the hands of Israel, end quote. It's the big pharmaceutical companies, Glenn, that make all the big decisions. In early August, Sunni radicals attacked Shias praying before a wedding in the Indonesian province of central Java. The prayer is called a Maido Durini, which is traditional for Indonesian people to do the night before the wedding. However, rumor got out that a Shia ritual was being performed, so a group of a hundred people approached the house shouting, Shia is not authentic Islam, <laughs> <Got he. laughs> damaging the house and vehicles. Only 0.5% of Indonesia are Shiites, while 90% of the country are Sunnis. <laughs> In July, the editor-in-chief at Hungary's leading independent news site, Index.hu, was fired after a Viktor Orban ally purchased the news source last year. More than 90 Index journalists signed an open letter that said, quote, This decision is unacceptable to us. 
The reason for Dole's dismissal was that he made it clear that he will not yield to blackmail, end quote. More than half of the staff at Index, at least 70 people, quit in protest. Liberal principles like freedom of speech. In the middle of August, riots broke out at the beach in the Belgian resort town Blankenberga. As cops tried to break up beachgoers, they began resisting, leading to wide-scale brawls between police and people in swimsuits. The incident included beach chairs, umbrellas, and sand being thrown. King of the beach. King of the beach. Hundreds of German police officers faced off against protesters who were trying to stop the eviction of a left-wing bar in Berlin. The bar is called Syndicat Bar, and it has been the focus of an anti-gentrification campaign. Police detained 44 people after protesters erected barricades and set several fires in a failed attempt to stop legal officials from entering the bar. On August 1st, a large crowd of up to 20,000 protesters gathered at Berlin's Brandenburg Gate to protest against the German government's coronavirus restrictions. The march was named Day of Freedom, Freedom, Day of Freedom, the End of the Pandemic by organizers. All major political parties in Germany have condemned the protests, except for the far-right AFD, the Alternative für Deutschland, and the center-right pro-capitalist business party called the Free Democrats, who both supported the protests. The protest fee- well, I could say, obviously AFD supported it because they prescribed to the classic right-wing death drive, like, they just- all, like, fascism is just founded by this, like, drive towards death on a societal level, so of course AFD would be into it, and then, uh, the Free Democrats being, you know, the pro-capitalist business party. Obviously, they just want these people to die so they can continue working and shopping and fueling that capitalist machine. So they both have different motives, but it shows why capitalist motivation and uh, far-right motivations often intersect because they do support each other even if they're coming from different motivations. I mean, that, that those are just some preliminary sketches. So, uh, the protest featured many groups, and a group called Queer Denken 7-Eleven organized the event. The interior minister for the city of Berlin, Andreas Geisel, said neo-Nazi organizations had called for people to participate in the march. Many of the protesters were members of the neo-Nazi NPD party, which the German state has attempted to ban several times, but strategically avoids appearing too outwardly neo-Nazi, also present were many followers of the Reichsburger movement, which includes several different groups 
who kind of all overlap and believe similar things, they all kind of argue that the Federal Republic of Germany is not a legitimate state. Like, Germany as it exists today is not legitimate. They argue that the German Reich, or occasionally Prussia, why is there not any Holy Roman Empire Reichsburger people? Come on! Um, but yeah, so they believe that the German Reich, sometimes Prussia, continues to exist in its pre-World War II borders and that it is governed by a provisional Reich government or a, quote, government in exile. Its closest parallel in the U.S. would be the sovereign citizen movement, who similarly are made up of middle-aged white rural men who question the legitimacy of the state from a far-right perspective. Some other protesters included the anti-Muslim group Pegida, as well as German QAnon followers and anti-vaxxers. Protesters reportedly, quote, aggressively asked journalists to remove their masks. Uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? A Venezuelan court sentenced two former members of the Green Berets to 20 years in prison for their role in the Makuto Bay Raid and attempted overthrow of President Maduro. The two men were found guilty of conspiracy, trafficking in illegal arms, and terrorism. Yankees, go home. At least 13 people were crushed to death or asphyxiated as partygoers tried to flee a nightclub in Lima, Peru after it was raided by police for hosting a party in violation of coronavirus restrictions. Here's a little news flash. It's not funny. In fact, it's pretty freaking unfunny. The public prosecutor's office said that 11 of the 13 dead tested positive for COVID-19. 15 of the 23 people detained by police also tested positive. It was many of the people in the room. A major Bolivian union led a protest march opposing Bolivia's coup government, which recently postponed the election until October 18th. I'm going to talk more about the Bolivian coup government later on in the episode, so uh, stay tuned for that. But uh, for now, I'm just going to talk about these protests in the election, so... uh, Thousands of people joined the march, organized by the powerful Bolivian Workers' Center, an umbrella group representing various industries. This has been followed by other protests. Both the rightful president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, and the protesters claim that the government has done nothing to help coronavirus, but they are still using, you know, coronavirus as an excuse to push back the election. They argue, and they're probably right, that the best way to help the coronavirus is to hold elections now because the coup government isn't actually helping anything. Don't turn in, Pop-Pop. Help, Pop-Pop. The unrest escalated throughout August, leading to frequent mass protests that often included blockades. 
The coup government claims the protesters are blocking supplies to aid coronavirus, which the protesters deny. This is a similar deceptive tactic used against protesters often here in the United States. The Movement for Socialism candidate and successor to Evo Morales, Luis Arce, has been polling heavily in the lead in every poll. With Luis Arce, hopefully I'm saying that right, as the frontrunner, a delayed election could allow his opponents to manipulate things ahead of time. You've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing. And now we're just going to end with a few pieces of tech news and then we can get into some of my bigger stories. Peter Thiel's data mining company Palantir is on the verge of going public and now is also moving to Denver from the Silicon Valley. Amazon sent a poll to Seattle-based office employees that strongly suggests Amazon is looking to move jobs out of the city and into surrounding towns and cities. The message to employees asks where they'd prefer to live, including Tacoma, which if you don't... I'm going over this because we're newly in Seattle, folks, so uh, I want to talk about some Washington news. Uh, if you don't know where Tacoma is, it's about an hour south of Seattle, and then they also give the option of Redmond, which is northeast of Seattle. It's a little closer, but more suburban feeling. It's where Microsoft and Nintendo of America are headquartered. So they had some other options, too. I don't remember what they are. Maybe Everett, Bothell. I, I don't know, but you get the idea. Jeff Bozo. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, a.k.a. ICE, signed a contract with the facial recognition company Clearview AI for mission support. The purchase order listed Clearview licenses for $224,000 with, quote, ICE Mission Support Dallas, end quote, as the contracting office. Oink, oink, pig, can you sing a song? If you don't remember about Clearview AI or if you didn't hear about it, it is a very powerful facial recognition tool. It was used with someone with very dubious ties to the far right. And it, or like it's created by, it's being funded by, I don't know. He probably, who the guy funding it is probably getting money from some dude like Peter Thiel because he has all these like far right cronies. Like that is, I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but that's how incestuous all this like um, right wing, far right and capitalist tech overlord that's how like incestuous they are but uh anyway the guy who started it super right wing has dubious ties and a lot of police departments were starting to use it but some cities were banning police departments from using it because it was such a violation of your civil liberties i mean it's just flagrantly just the most facial recognition type stuff you can imagine out of a movie. Future. Future. 
one last story alphabet and google employees if you if you don't know alphabet is technically the parent company of google uh they are trained to avoid using certain words and phrases in internal communications and quote assume every document will become public according to a report from the markup a document titled quote five rules of thumb for written communication states that quote words matter especially in antitrust law end quote employees across the company including engineers what salespeople what interns what vendors what contractors what and temp workers are encouraged to avoid the terms market what the term barriers to entry what and network effects what the latter being a reference to how a social network gains value the more users it has. Interesting. One of the documents says that the parent company, quotes gets sued a lot and we have our fair share of regular d- regulatory investigations, end quote. So uh, that's just an interesting thing. That wraps up my jumbo-sized... Facts and Logic Report. I know that was a marathon, folks, but I had to get you caught up on the news that you miss. We can get it out of the way. We're all caught up in news. We can do more fun stuff now. I have two more stories to talk about. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. Uh, going into the future, I'm going to keep the facts and logic report kind of a shorter segment. I wanted to do the marathon this episode. It's the catch-up episode. But uh, I really would rather focus on longer stories rather than just spewing out a bunch at the beginning. It works for Democracy Now!, but I don't release as frequently as Democracy Now!, so uh, with the uh, first major story I'm going to talk about, it's about the Covexodus. My mom is on the cheese. Mom is on the cheese. If I get lucky, I'll get a disease. So, uh, and by Covexodus, I mean, you know, a combination of COVID-19 and Exodus. Because what is going on is there is a max mass exodus from several cities in several countries some of these reasons are directly related to coronavirus some are partially um but we're gonna talk about that so there's been a mass exodus from the capital of bangladesh dhaka as the economic impact of COVID-19 is forcing Bangladeshis to flee cities. So I want to start focusing on Bangladesh because that you may have been hearing about this in American press, about American cities, but uh, we don't often hear about things like this for a place like Bangladesh. So I'm going to talk about the situation there, compare it to the United States, and then some other countries and see what conclusions we can draw from the fact that many people are leaving cities and COVID is a big part. 
So poor DACAites, people who live in DACA, have basically no social safety net. Bangladeshi workers, especially in the clothing sector, were forced back to work with little protection. The government launched aid programs to sustain the poor during lockdown, but did not reach urban slum populations, which is what needed it the most. Uh, because a lot of people living in the in these urban slums are actually migrant workers. Usually, you know, they come from elsewhere. Uh, usually, rural parts of Bangladesh. So, um, so as DACA starts emptying out, especially these urban poor villages are filling up and. Th- most people returning out to the countryside will try to get agricultural work, um, but it's not guaranteed because these villages aren't really designed for a mass uh, a mass amount of workers to flood into their markets. M- Many left their villages in the first place because making a living from the land had become impossible. And on top of all of this, the effects of climate change, which, you know, includes land erosion, the infiltration of salty water into previously arable land. Um, All of this stuff has forced millions to abandon their native homes in rural parts of Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh, along with maybe Indonesia, I'm sure there's other countries too, but Bangladesh is one of the earliest and most deeply affected countries from climate change, due due in large parts um, to the country being such low altitude and frequently flooding. Uh, I mean, Dhaka was underwater when I was reading about this a few weeks ago, so... And Dhaka is basically built at the delta of a massive river. It's all, the whole, half the country's floodplains, so. So let's not just talk about Bangladesh. The exodus from major cities is not just unique, unique to there. It's also happening here in the United States. Um, San Francisco Chronicle reported in June that one out of 13 renters in San Francisco broke their lease since COVID started. And let me be clear, that doesn't mean unpaid rent, because that if someone wasn't paying their rent, it would mean they're still abiding by the lease, they're just not fulfilling their end of the lease. But if you... Um, break your lease that entails that you're moving most likely and similarly throughout june and into july there were several articles about how people are moving out of new york city there's also been a lot of articles about how people are leaving cities like new york because of crime 
uh, that's a right-wing talking point. I don't think that's actually true. It may be true. Like, I always joke that uh, a lot of U.S. cities are one thrown brick away from people moving out to the suburbs. Like, in any city, you have one brick thrown through a window, and at least some one person's like, okay, we're moving out now. I don't think crime is actually contributing as much as COVID because COVID actually has an economic impact, whereas um, crime, I mean, it, it does have an economic impact, but it's not systemic, obviously, uh, and that's just their way to tie the protest movement going on into crime, so. Democrats decided to shield and shelter criminal... Look, look, wait. You have criminals... But there was recently a report from New York City that... Welcome to New York! There is 67,000 empty units in the city, and rent in those available units are down 9% from the same time last year. So that's say it's a let's say it's a $2,000 apartment down 9%. That's what like almost 1,800 down from 2,000. That's a pretty big difference can i mean in the grand scheme of things it's not that big of a difference but it does make a difference when you consider that the pr cost of or the price of rent has been going up way faster than wages have at a very accelerated pace for a long time so that that actually is a lot for me, it's unclear if this is a broader trend in other U.S. cities. I can't imagine it's just a San Francisco, New York City thing. Um, coronavirus is already compounding on the already currently existing trend in the U.S. where people are moving to more suburban cities in the South, like... South Carolina, Florida, Texas, as well as small and suburban cities in the Mountain West, like in Idaho or Colorado, um, Arizona, places like that. So my point being is there's just a lot of moving around, even if it's not related to COVID. The The causes for people moving around are being accelerated by COVID. And I do have some other stories from other countries about Covexiduses as well. Science Magazine published an article about an exodus of the working poor in major Indian cities like... Mumbai and New Delhi for I'm sure there's a lot more those are just the two that apply most to this so uh, a lot of the largest Indian cities depend on migrant labor I kind of mentioned this with uh, Dhaka although most of the they're not really migrants because they're in the country in Bangladesh most of the workers are domestic that then go to the city in India that's not always the case the the they could come the workers could come from more rural parts of India but there's also a lot of workers from other countries so the working poor in the biggest Indian cities were suffering the worst with the Indian government restricting their ability to move 
you know, stopping trains. This led to multiple labor strikes and protests, and after the Modi administration failed at providing workers with basically any resources, they began organizing buses and other forms of transportation out of the cities, specifically for migrant workers. In other words, the city wasn't giving any of these migrant workers resources, so they're like, screw this, we're going to go back to our families out in the villages we come from. And the Modi administration said, no, you're actually going to stay here and we're going to cancel the trains. And so they protest and, and we're like, well, give us, give us something to help. And the Modi administration said, no, actually, we're going to force you to go back to your families now. If you're not just going to work, then screw it. Go home. And so while having migrant urban poor workers go back, back to their home villages has alleviated some tensions regarding COVID. Uh, it has created problems elsewhere. For example, Science Magazine writes, quote, The big question now is whether the destination states can deal with the expected rise in cases. The state of Bihar, for instance, which has lower than average numbers of medical facilities and healthcare personnel, has already received half a million people and is braced for another half million in the coming days. End quote. Also, Israel's leading demographer, a professor named Sergio Della Pergola, warns that there could be a post-COVID-19 exodus by young, educated Israelis. He says that high unemployment mixed with political unrest will likely contribute to people leaving the country and then with, on top of high unemployment and the political unrest, you add coronavirus and it, it's just, yeah. Uh, so Professor Del, Della Pergola uh, seemed particularly alarmed. I don't hear an alarm. Let's take stuff. That these factors would negatively impact Jewish immigration to the state of Israel from other countries. He says immigrants from Russia, Argentina, and Mexico tend to move to Israel due to unemployment rates in their home country, but if there's unemployment issues in Israel, it will strongly decrease the amount of Jewish immigration to Israel. And finally, just to let you know that this is in fact a global trend that is highly related to coronavirus, but not necessarily. Um, it's This one's not even unemployment related, but before coronavirus even started getting bad, there was, of course, Brexit going on. After Brexit, several large companies began moving staff out of the UK and into continental Europe. This was causing an exodus from London and some of the other major British cities. However, they moved to European cities that often already had issues with sky-high rent, gentrification, and overcrowding from tourists, like Paris, Amsterdam, 
some German cities, Frankfurt, I'm assuming, is one of the main ones. They all have uh, issues with rent, gentrification, overcrowding. Amsterdam, in particular, actually has a really terrible tourist problem in the sense that a lot of day-to-day stuff isn't able to function because of the mass amount of tourists. Ultimately, I'm not sure what all this will amount to, but it does seem like exoduses from major cities and also uh, maybe overcrowding of other cities is a growing trend. I think it's growing because the conditions that enabled these moves to begin with haven't been alleviated. They've actually been made worse by coronavirus. There's still a shortage of jobs in many parts of the world, and a lot of these jobs just honestly will probably not be coming back. A lot of them will come back. A lot of them probably won't. And so I think this is a time where there's going to be a lot of people moving around for a lot of different reasons. So uh, I'll keep my eye on that. Also, while I was gone, uh, there was, so there's been a perennial debate online and it flared up again after Elon Musk tweeted that we, meaning the U.S., will coup whoever we want. Um, he, so he tweeted that in response to someone mentioning the Bolivian coup. He's like, yeah, we will coup whoever we want. Uh, and so this reignited a perennial debate that has been active on Twitter basically since the coup in Bolivia. Uh, and I just want to give my thoughts on this now that we're removed from the coup in Bolivia. It's moved on to a, n- a new stage of Bolivian history where there's active resistance against the coup government. Um, and hopefully the elections will bring in uh, a a Moss, which is Evo Morales' party, a Moss candidate as president. Here's hoping, but let, let's respect, reflect back a little bit. So some people say the coup in Bolivia was for lithium in a similar way that the Iraq war was for oil. And then some other people say that the coup was not for lithium, and in fact, most lithium is produced in Australia. So here are my thoughts on it. The Bolivian coup was not for lithium crowd has, I'd say, a straightforward in a straightforward way of thinking about the world economy because they see it as a binary. Either the coup was for lithium or it wasn't. But I don't think anyone is claiming the coup was solely for lithium. We have to remember that lithium production is currently up over seven times what it was in 2000. It's rising very quickly, and I'm assuming will probably continue to rise quickly. And even though it's true that most current lithium production is in Australia, as much as 75% of the world's lithium is in what's called the Lithium Triangle, which is where Chile, Bolivia, and Argentina meet. 
So when people say the Bolivian coup was for lithium, it gets perceived as a much more simplistic argument than it really is. It's about the broader trends of material wealth and history. So it's not like Elon Musk personally conducted a coup to get his grubby hands on all the lithium. It's not that simple. But the U.S. imperialist capitalist machine is always working to align the world's resources to feed into that machine. The U.S. sees a poor country developing under an elected socialist leader, and they want to swoop in and redirect that country's resources towards the United States. Currently, Australia does most of the current lithium production, like I said. But capitalism always seeks cheaper production. That's pretty common sense. That's why we have all our clothes are made in Bangladesh and all our this are made in that and blah, blah, blah. Bolivia is rich with minerals that capitalism will seek more and more as time goes on, and it would be much easier for American capitalists to enjoy to employ Bolivian workers for much cheaper than Australian workers. When people say the Bolivian coup was for lithium, they're making a broader claim that isn't specifically about lithium. So imagine this situation, and I think it spells out my point perfectly. Imagine someone said, we invaded Afghanistan because it's rich in minerals. That isn't actually true. We did not invade Afghanistan because it's rich in minerals. But it alludes to a bigger truth. The U.S. invaded Afghanistan to establish a pseudo-colony. I mean, technically we invaded it to capture uh, Osama bin Laden, but we didn't actually do that while we were there. It, it wasn't until later as it went... It wasn't until later, and I mean, that's a whole other thing. I'm not even going to get into Osama bin Laden, but... We invaded Afghanistan to establish a pseudo-colony and used the resources of that pseudo-colony to benefit the U.S. The United States' pseudo-colony, Afghanistan, also happens to be very lucrative. Afghanistan is very rich in minerals, as well as opium, as well as the list goes on. Geopolitical realignment like invasions and coups are never done for specifically one reason or one resource. Even when the U.S. assassinated Gaddafi, it was clearly for oil because Gaddafi intended to take Libyan oil off the petrodollar. Same with Saddam Hussein. So while these invasions and assassinations were for oil, they were also to destabilize, destabilize power centers in the Middle East and therefore gain more power in geopolitical p positioning. 
Instead, the way these realignments work is they benefit defense contractors. What? Which in turn benefits American politicians. What? Which in turn helps the pharmaceutical industry. What? Which in turn helps right-wing and far-right political actors. What? Which in turn benefits tech manufacturers. What? And so on. You have to think about things like this as being a place where interests intersect and overlap for different reasons. There is no one reason for anything. Something as big as completely changing the government of a a country, that requires many people with many different interests, many different things to gain, etc. So I'll just leave it at that. That's my thoughts on... Not only the coup in Bolivia, but I guess coups in general, for the most part. For my last segment, I actually have some listener mail. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. So uh, I'm going to answer, it's not exactly a question, kind of a question, more of a comment. I'm going to give my thoughts about it. A listener wrote in, and uh, let's do it. They wrote, quote, I would love to hear you articulate how the Democratic Republican Party absorbed all of its competition, the Whigs and the Federalists, and then morphed into two dominant parties, and then maybe elaborate on your own theories or opinions on that power move. I feel as though... I feel as if this was all orchestrated so the masses feel as if their freedom of to feel as if there is the freedom of choice but in reality you are choosing the same thing kind of like Coke or Pepsi it's just cola right So I'm not an expert on why some U.S. political parties went away and why some stayed, like the historical reasons, but you don't have to know that stuff to figure out why our country's two-party system exists and how it's completely kind of screwed up, Uh, but let me go into it. Ultimately, our two-party system goes back to the founding of the structure of the United States government. One of the main reasons we have a two-party system is rooted in the idea that, or the Founding Fathers, it's rooted in the Founding Fathers having contempt for lower class and working class people. One of the other main reasons is the Founding Fathers had immense idealism, which made them think it would be possible to not have political parties at all. So this hatred of the poor that is often glossed over in American history mixed with their liberal idealism, and I mean liberal in the most traditional sense of the word. They were proto-capitalists in the burgeoning European tradition. So those two things together made George Washington 
not want to have political parties. And not just George Washington, a lot of the founding fathers. But the mechanisms they put in place to avoid political parties ended up creating the two-party system. When the United States was founded, George Washington and several others were very afraid of political parties. And the reason why is political parties were just beginning to develop in Europe. These political parties existed to represent the interests of groups and challenge the interests of other groups. George Washington didn't want a group of people challenging his American aristocratic interests. In the U.S., we're taught the early days of our country was like a bastion of democracy, but in reality, it was very elitist. George Washington and his peers had the power. They didn't want factions developing that may threaten that power, and political parties represented those factions. George Washington claimed all governments rightfully recognize that political parties are their enemies and governments rightfully, it's in their right, repress parties because they want power. Washington acknowledged that political parties represent different interests vying for power, but he didn't want anyone else to have power. So on one hand, George Washington and other founding fathers were contemptuous of the working class. Washington opposed political parties because at that time, a political party would be like, I believe this specific thing. If there's a group of people saying, I believe this thing that's opposite what they believe, there will be a conflict, and it threatened George Washington and his buddies. On the other hand, George Washington had ideological and idealistic motivation too, not just repressive motivations. George Washington and the Founding Fathers were, like I said, hardcore liberals in the old-fashioned use of the term. They were pro-capitalism or whatever... I mean, it was a little too early for capitalism to exist, but it, it was beginning to develop. It's like they knew it was coming, but at this point... because oh, So I'll just da- delve into this a little bit. So really brief detour. So in Europe, say when the French Revolution happened... They didn't actually realize that the revolution they were doing was paving the way for capitalism to exist. They didn't realize that their current feudal economic system would lead the way to capitalism. They were just looking to liberate themselves from from their feudal lords. And then in the aftermath of the revolution, power was seized by arguably the next strongest class class or the strongest class that remained the strongest and most organized class that remained after the revolution which include the employer class aka the capitalist class aka bourgeois so in that sense 
liberalism existed before capitalism, even though, because liberalism is personified by, like, the American and French revolutions, or exemplified by the American and French revolutions. So, at this point, liberalism hadn't quite bridged the gap into just being what I would normally call capitalism. Anyway... Um, because of the new liberal worldview that was just starting to develop and come to power, Washington and other founding fathers were much more individualistically minded than the feudal continent they were leaving behind. And the reason I call their view idealistic, as in... Uh, their view against political parties is because the founding fathers were convinced that the best way for people to vote is if individual people ran for president and we individually vote for the best individual. The problem is the founding fathers instituted political system to make their individualistic political idea a reality. What they didn't realize is that a political system without parties is impossible, and the system that they designed worked perfectly for a two-party system. In other words, they purposely tried to make a system in which political parties don't exist, which led to our broken two-party system kind of almost as a historical accident, right? And so, in the U.S., we use a first-past-the-post, winner-take-all voting system. This means that the first person to win enough votes in one round of voting wins everything. Also, you can only vote for one candidate. You can't do ranked choice. You can't be like, I want this candidate most and this candidate second most. On the surface level, you can see why this American system would appeal to individualistically minded people, but when you dig a little deeper, it becomes obvious that what our system actually does is make it impossible for anything except two parties to exist. It took decades, even centuries, for the U.S. to get this deeply sentimented, or not sentimented, cemented into the two-party system. Because at first, you know, there were some fringe parties that pop up, become a major party, say a major party, but only for like four or five elections that go away. Now it's just so cemented like concrete. These are the two parties and there's there's no budging. Um... As for historical American parties like the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, I honestly don't know much about them, but I do know a little bit about the Whigs. And the Whigs were one of the two major parties from the 1830s to the 50s, and they were ostensibly the left-wing party, and the Democrats were the right-wing party. The Whigs, the reason why they eventually failed was because there was an increasing tensions between the two economic models in the United States, chattel slavery and bourgeoisie capitalism. 
The Whigs were ambivalent about slavery. They were more opposed to slavery than the Democrats were, but they didn't really want to talk about it or campaign on being anti-slavery. By the 1850s, slavery became the most important political issue in the country, and the Whigs had nothing to say about slavery. So one of the biggest, some might even say the only real factor, the biggest factors for why the Whigs decline is the economic tensions of the country became irreconcilable and the party refused to take a side. So I put a lot of ideas out there. Let me try to wrap them, tie them together. I'm not exactly wrapping up. I have a little bit more to say, but I'm going to start tying the loose ends together. The way that the U.S. political apparatuses are designed make them perfect for a duopoly of powers, a two-party power system ruled by two. Traditionally, political parties are groups that represent a specific... (laughs) I was going to say they're a group that represent a specific group. Political parties represent specific groups with specific invested interests. How's that? For example, a party representing agrarian landlords could act in coalition with a party representing industrial capitalists and a party representing finance capitalists, etc. Those parties may represent the social elite, but they're still, in this system I'm imagining, different parties representing specific groups. That's traditionally how political parties worked. So in this sense... The U.S. doesn't even really have political parties. We don't have parties that represent specific interests. We have two parties with a very loose sense of a party platform, but they don't represent interests or specific interests. Instead, the Republican and Democratic Party should be thought of as state apparatuses themselves. The parties do not represent a specific group or interest. They are almost, they're almost governmental. Okay, I would describe them as semi-governmental platforms that people run on to give themselves credibility. So it's not only like we just have two parties. We have two parties that are intrinsically linked to the government to the extent that the parties themselves embedded are embedded into the government i've used this example but before but think of the communist party in china that's easy for westerners westerners to be like oh well the party isn't technically the government but everyone in the government is in the party so for all practical purposes it is a governmental body even if it does if it exists separate from the government per se in the US you can't really be like 
oh, the Democrats and Republicans aren't part of the government. They, they are. Even if the parties are separate entities, they, they are... They do functions that governments do themselves. They don't do functions that conventional political parties do. So this is all big reasons why third parties don't get power. In order to gain legitimacy in the eyes of most voters, you have to go through the framework created and dominated by the two-party system. Most people have been conditioned to never vote for anyone unless they are a Democrat or a Republican. So now let me kind of start wrapping up. What should be done about this, you might be asking. If we wanted a politically diverse government in the United States, it would require dismantling a lot of mechanisms of the state apparatus. If you wanted a lot of political parties, a lot of things are going to have to change. And to be completely honest, I don't think those kinds of changes would come from reform. State apparatuses especially in the United States, they're like so deeply integrated that it may require a total revolution for changes that give power to third parties to occur. It's just so deeply ingrained. So unfortunately, I think there are three ways to advance a third party agenda. And they're not great options. I'm I'm going to be honest. They're not the most ideal options. The first is simply a full-blown revolution, which isn't going to happen soon. I'm sorry, it's just not. There isn't infrastructure for people to lead a revolution. And there's no group or party with popular legitimacy to potentially wage a revolution. And if there was a but if there was a revolution you could just redesign governmental apparatuses from the ground up. There, problem solved. The section second option is more likely to happen, but it's not nearly as satisfying. This option is to build a movement outside of the two political parties and then use that popular movement to take over one of the parties. This happened with the Tea Party movement taking over the Republican Party in, in many ways. It also happened even earlier than that uh, with the Republican Party when the neocons took over. It didn't used to be a neoconservative party, but if you're around my age, which is... I was born in 91, I was 10 when 9-11 happened... So it, it's almost unreal to me that the Republican Party wouldn't be dominated by neocons. But that did exist, and they took over. Um, and <clears throat> this was also attempted with the progressives and Bernie Sanders trying to take over the Democratic Party with their mass movement. But that sadly failed. Um so that's not exactly the same, but if you have a specific agenda, you could try to build a mass movement which then tries to take over a party, or at least integrate itself in the party enough to sway the general position of the party. 
the third and final option, which could be possible but doesn't happen often, is a new party could replace one of the current ones. I brought up the example of the wigs earlier, because I think one of the parties would only be replaced if our country reached the level of tension as it was at in the 1850s. I don't think a party is going to go the way of the Whigs unless our country just starts radically changing and one of the parties isn't answering for the changes of the time. However, tension is increasing now. I mean, this is a tense-ass country, dude. And Democrats are still not choosing a new approach. They're doing the same thing that sucked when Bill Clinton did it in the 90s, and they haven't tried to do something different. They lost with Hillary Clinton, and they're still doing the same thing. How ridiculous is that? However, like, tension is increasing in this country, like I said, and I think it is possible that the Democrats get replaced. But it'll be a slow, drawn-out process with the Democrats slowly getting less relevant over time. In conclusion, and finally reaching my conclusion, I don't want to seem too cynical or disappoint any third-party supporters. But the simple truth is, third parties are not a viable route to win major elections in the United States. And the reasons that they're not viable go really deep into the, like, the DNA and the origins of the United States. I want people to think about how our parties and government systems and political mechanisms and so on, all of those disparate elements, I want people to think about how they exist as a system. The system supports itself and reifies the other elements of the system. And as much as it sucks, we have to familiarize ourselves with these structures to understand how they work. And with that, this has been the return episode of The Society Show. Thank you for listening. Society getting back in the groove on this return episode so bear with me i do want to say that now that we're returned i have a lot of great stuff coming up a lot of big guests big news stories lots to talk about um in the meantime you can write you can follow the podcast on twitter at society underscore show you can follow me on twitter at christian is cool christian iz cool is spelled iz you can check out undergroundmall.xyz. It's a blog associated with this podcast, although it has not been updated in a while. There is some cool old articles on there. And uh, like I said before, just stay tuned because there is a lot in store with the show. I'm going to make it way cooler than it ever has. This is just kind of getting back in the swing of things. Um, and thank you for listening to... The Society Show! Till next time, take care of yourself and each other. On the next Arrested Development.
I am Bob Paducic, son of Anthony and Judy Paducic, and I cast Ohio's 82 votes for Donald John President. Something very special. Come and boom. Oh, a little spice, a little spice from here. We kept the oil, if that's okay with you. We kept the oil. I have people calling me up, sir. We want to have a fund to save the shark. It's called Save the Shark. I say, no, thank you. I have other things I can contribute to.